Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the OrthoBullets podcast. In today's episode, we cover the topic of elbow physical exam found under the shoulder and elbow section at orthobullets.com. Let's begin with a general outline. The steps to a physical exam include inspection, palpation, range of motion, stability, motor, sensory, vascular, and provocative tests. We'll now discuss each of these sections in more detail. In terms of inspection, begin by inspecting the skin. Make note of any swelling. Remember that in patients with elbow effusion, they will generally hold their elbow flexed at around 70 to 80 degrees of flexion at rest. Remember that this is the position of maximal elbow capsular distension. Also note any fullness of the elbow soft spot, which is the confluence of the radial head, lateral epicondyle, and the olecranon. Make note of any hypertrophy, and also note the elbow carrying angle. In full extension, this is normally around 11 degrees in men and about 13 degrees in women. Remember that this will be higher in throwing athletes. Inspection can also demonstrate signs of olecranon bursitis. And in terms of some clinical pearls, for cubital tunnel syndrome, remember that there may be first dorsal interosseous or first web space atrophy. There will be clawing of the small and ring finger, although this is more commonly seen with Guillain's canal compression due to unopposed flexor digitorum profundus flexion. For a distal biceps tendon rupture, one may note medial ecchymosis and swelling, a change in the contour of the muscle proximally, and a varying degree of proximal retraction of the muscle belly. This is referred to as a reverse Popeye sign. In terms of palpation, make sure to palpate any bony prominences. This may include the olecranon, medial epicondyle, lateral epicondyle, and the radial head, which is best palpated while rotating the forearm from pronation to supination. Also palpate muscles and soft tissues, which include the flexor pronator mass, the extensor mass origin, the olecranon bursa, the MCL insertion, which is palpated just distal to the medial epicondyle with the elbow in 50 to 70 degrees of flexion in order to move the flexor pronator mass anteriorly. Also make sure to palpate the LCL insertion. In terms of some clinical pearls, for MCL injuries, one may note tenderness over the MCL origin which is just inferior to the medial epicondyle. This is best assessed with the elbow at 50 to 70 degrees of flexion in order to move the flexor pronator mass anteriorly to the MCL. In valgus extension overload, patients may be tender to palpation over the posterior medial olecranon. In cubital tunnel syndrome, one may note subluxation of the ulnar nerve over the medial epicondyle with the elbow moving from extension to flexion. This hypermobility occurs in about 33% of adults and it is not necessarily associated with cubital tunnel syndrome. It is also important to differentiate this from a snapping medial head of the triceps over the medial epicondyle, which may occur in resisted elbow extension from a fully flexed elbow. In radial tunnel syndrome, maximal tenderness will be at about 3 to 5 centimeters distal to the lateral epicondyle. This is more distal than in lateral epicondylitis. In lateral epicondylitis, there will be point tenderness at the ECRB insertion into the lateral epicondyle. This is just a few millimeters distal to the tip of the lateral epicondyle, which is unlike radial tunnel syndrome, which exhibits tenderness 3 to 5 centimeters distal to the epicondyle. And in medial epicondylitis, one may note tenderness 5 to 10 millimeters distal and anterior to the medial epicondyle, and there may be soft tissue swelling and warmth if inflammation is present. In terms of range of motion, Make sure to check passive and active range of motion of both sides. Also check for any crepitus and mechanical blocks. In terms of flexion and extension, 
normal flexion and extension is about 0 to 140 degrees. However, there may be loss of full extension which can be seen in professional throwers even in the absence of pathology. Functional range of motion is between 30 and 130 degrees. A soft endpoint indicates an effusion or capsular tightness, whereas a firm endpoint indicates a mechanical block such as from a loose body, a fracture, or an osteophyte. In terms of pronation and supination, make sure to check this with the shoulders fully adducted and the elbow at 90 degrees. Normal pronation is about 75 degrees, whereas normal supination is about 85 degrees. Functional pronation and supination is about 50 degrees of pronation and 50 degrees of supination. In terms of stability, make sure to evaluate varus and valgus stability. Valgus stability can be checked with the elbow flex to about 20 to 30 degrees, where this will unlock the olecranon, then externally rotate the humerus and apply a valgus stress. This will test the integrity of the MCL. In terms of motor strength, testing elbow flexion in full supination primarily tests the brachialis and the biceps, which receive innervation by the C5 and C6 nerve roots. Testing elbow flexion in zero degrees of supination or with the thumb pointing to the ceiling primarily tests the brachioradialis, which receives innervation by the C6 nerve root. Testing elbow extension primarily tests the triceps. This receives innervation by C7. Wrist pronation evaluates the flexor pronator mass, which receives innervation from C7 and C8. Wrist supination will primarily test the biceps, which receives innervation from C6. Wrist extension evaluates ECRL, ECRB, and ECU, which receive innervation from C6 through C8. Wrist flexion will test FCR and FCU, which also receive innervation from C6 through C8. Finger and thumb extension will test EDC and EPL, which receive innervation from C7 and C8. Finger and thumb flexion will test FDS, FDP, and FPL, which receive innervation from C7 and C8. And all small intrinsic movements of the hand are testing the lumbricals and the interossei muscles, which receive innervation from T1. In terms of some clinical pearls, in cubital tunnel syndrome, one may note a weak pinch. This is from loss of thumb adduction, which may be as much as 70% of pinch strength that is lost. There may also be Froment sign, which is compensatory thumb IP flexion by the FPL, which is innervated by the AIN during a key pinch. This compensates for the loss of MCP flexion by the adductor pollicis, which is innervated by the ulnar nerve. In a PIN syndrome, there may be finger metacarpal extension weakness or wrist extension weakness. This is an inability to extend the wrist in neutral or ulnar deviation. Remember that the wrist will extend with radial deviation due to an intact ECRL and an absent ECU. In AIN syndrome, there will be a positive OK sign, which tests the FDP and FPL, so the patient will be unable to make an OK sign with their hand. There will also be pronator quadratus weakness. This is demonstrated with the weak resisted pronation with the elbow maximally flexed. In terms of the sensory exam, make sure to evaluate sensation from the medial antibrachial cutaneous nerve, lateral antibrachial cutaneous nerve, posterior antibrachial cutaneous nerve, the ulnar nerve, the median nerve, and the superficial radial nerve. In terms of some clinical pearls, in cubital tunnel syndrome, there will be decreased two-point discrimination over the small finger and the ulnar half of the ring finger. There will also be decreased two-point discrimination over the ulnar aspect of the dorsal hand. This will help to discriminate cubital tunnel syndrome from a more distal entrapment, 
Remember that this is because the dorsal branch of the ulnar nerve branches 5 centimeters proximal to the wrist. In pronator syndrome, there will be sensory disturbances over the distribution of the palmar cutaneous branch of the median nerve, which arises 4 to 5 centimeters proximal to the carpal tunnel. This is unlike in carpal tunnel syndrome, which does not exhibit sensory disturbances over the palmar cutaneous nerve distribution. In terms of the vascular exam, make sure to evaluate the brachial artery. This is palpable on the anterior aspect of the elbow, medial to the tendon of the biceps. Also evaluate the radial artery and the ulnar artery. Now let's discuss provocative tests for stability. In the case of MCL injuries, one may perform the milking maneuver. This creates a valgus stress by pulling on the patient's thumb with the forearm supinated and the elbow flexed at 90 degrees. The patient may be supine or seated or standing. The test is positive if there is a subjective apprehension, instability, or pain at the MCL origin. Remember that this test is 87.5% sensitive with a negative predictive value of 100%. One may also perform a moving valgus stress test. For this test, place the elbow in the same position as the milking maneuver and apply a valgus stress while the elbow is ranged through a full arc of flexion and extension. The shoulder should be fully externally rotated during the test. The test is positive if there is a subjective apprehension, instability, or pain at the MCL origin between 70 and 120 degrees. Remember that this correlates in throwers to locations of early acceleration, which is around 70 degrees of flexion, and the location of late cocking, which is around 120 degrees of flexion. This test is 100% sensitive and 75% specific. To evaluate LCL injuries, one may perform a lateral pivot shift test. Here, the patient lies supine with the affected arm overhead. With the shoulder fully externally rotated, the forearm is supinated and a valgus stress is applied while bringing the elbow from full extension to flexion. At 40 degrees of flexion, the patient may feel pain and apprehension. A clunk appreciated at 40 degrees represents a dislocated radiocapitellar joint. With increased flexion, the triceps tension reduces the radial head and another clunk may be appreciated. This is often more reliable on an anesthetized patient. Another important test is a posterior lateral rotatory drawer test. Here, the patient is supine and the elbow is flexed to 40 degrees. The forearm is supinated and the examiner's index finger is placed under the radial head and the thumb over it. One will then apply an anterior to posterior force over the lateral proximal forearm. The test is positive if there is apprehension or presence of a skin dimple, which indicates posterior subluxation of the radial head. Another test is the chair push-up test. Here, the patient is sitting on a chair, and they then attempt to perform a push-up while holding onto the handles with the forearm supinated. An inability to do a push-up or apprehension indicates a positive test. This test is 87.5% sensitive, but it is 100% when combined with the prone push-up test. Another test is the tabletop relocation test. This is a three-part test. During the first part, the patient places the hand of the symptomatic elbow around the edge of a table and is asked to perform a press-up maneuver with the elbow pointing laterally and the forearm supinated. Pain and apprehension as the elbow is gradually flexed indicates a positive test. During the second part, the same maneuver as the first part is performed, but the examiner places a thumb over the patient's radial head during the maneuver. Relief of pain and apprehension indicates a positive test, as the examiner's thumb should be preventing radial head subluxation. The third part is the same as the first, but without the examiner's thumb. Pain and apprehension during the first and third part with relief during the second part indicates a posterolateral instability. Remember that with an intraarticular radial head fracture, 
pain would be present in all three parts. And the last test is the prone push-up test. Here, the patient is unable to perform a push-up with their forearm supinated. This is 87.5% sensitive, but 100% sensitive when it is combined with the chair push-up test. In the case of valgus extension overload, there will be pain with forced elbow extension, and valgus loading during terminal extension reproduces the pain, whereas varus loading reduces pain. Now let's discuss provocative tests for nerves. In the case of cubital tunnel syndrome, there may be a gene sign. This is compensatory thumb MCP hyperextension and thumb adduction by the EPL, which is innervated by the radial nerve with the key pinch. This compensates for loss of IP extension and thumb adduction by the adductor pollicis, which is innervated by the ulnar nerve. There may be a Wartenberg sign. This is persistent small finger abduction and extension during attempted adduction, secondary to weak intrinsics and unopposed action of the EDM. There may be a mass sign. This is a palmar arch flattening and loss of the ulnar hand elevation, secondary to weak opponent's digiti quinti and decreased small finger MCP flexion. A tenel sign may be positive over the cubital tunnel with the elbow extended, and one may perform an elbow flexion test. This is positive when flexion of the elbow for more than 60 seconds reproduces symptoms. In the case of radial tunnel syndrome, one may perform a resisted long finger extension test. This may reproduce pain at the radial tunnel. One may perform a resisted supination test. This may also reproduce pain at the radial tunnel. One may evaluate passive pronation with wrist flexion, which may also reproduce pain at the radial tunnel. And also remember that passive stretch of the supinator muscle increases pressure inside of the radial tunnel to 250 millimeters of mercury, whereas it is normally around 50 millimeters of mercury. In the case of PIN syndrome, resisted supination will increase pain symptoms, and there may be a normal tenodesis test. Remember that the tenodesis test is used to differentiate from extensor tendon rupture. In the case of a pronator syndrome, there may be a positive tenel sign in the proximal anterior forearm, but no tenel sign at the wrist. There may be provocative symptoms with wrist flexion, as would be seen in carpal tunnel syndrome. Tests that are specific sites of entrapment include resisted elbow flexion with forearm supination, which compresses at the bicipital aponeurosis, resisted forearm pronation with the elbow extended, which compresses at the two heads of the pronator teres, and resisted contraction of the FDS to the middle finger, which compresses at the FDS fibrous arch. In the case of AIN syndrome, one must distinguish from FPL attritional rupture, which is seen in rheumatoid arthritis. One does this by passively flexing and extending the wrist to confirm tenodesis effect in an intact tendon. If the tendon is intact, then passive wrist extension brings the thumb IP joint and the index finger DIP joint into a relatively flexed position. Now let's discuss provocative tests for tendons. In the case of a triceps tendon rupture, one may perform a modified Thompson squeeze test. In this test, the patient lies prone with the elbow at the end of the table and the forearm hanging down. The triceps muscle is firmly squeezed, and an inability to extend the elbow against gravity suggests a complete disruption of the triceps proper and the lateral expansion. In the case of a distal biceps tendon rupture, one may perform a hook test. This is performed by asking the patient to actively flex the elbow to 90 degrees and to fully supinate the forearm. The examiner then uses their index finger to hook the lateral edge of the biceps tendon. With an intact or partially torn tendon, the finger can be inserted one centimeter beneath the tendon. False positives may occur if there is a partial tear, an intact Lacerda's fibrosis, or an underlying brachialis tendon. However, this test has a sensitivity and specificity of about 100%. One may perform the Roulon bicep squeeze test, 
which is akin to the Thompson or Simmons test for the Achilles rupture. For this test, the elbow is held in 60 to 80 degrees of flexion with the forearm slightly pronated. One hand stabilizes the elbow while the other hand squeezes across the distal biceps muscle belly. A positive test is failure to observe supination of the patient's forearm or wrist. This test has a sensitivity of 96%. One may also evaluate the biceps crease interval, or the BCI. This is the measurement of the distance between the palpable and anatomic biceps insertion. The patient elbow is brought from flexion to extension with the forearm supinated and the main crease in the antecubital fossa is marked. This is considered the crease. Next, the location where the distal biceps tendon turns most sharply towards the antecubital fossa is marked. This is considered the cusp. The distance between the crease and the cusp is the BCI. Values of greater than 6 centimeters or 1.2 times the value of the contralateral arm are positive for a biceps tendon rupture. This has 92% sensitivity and 100% specificity. One may perform a passive forearm pronation test. Here, there is observation that the biceps muscle belly moves proximally with forearm supination and distally with the forearm in pronation, actively or passively. Performing the hook test, passive forearm pronation test, and the BCI test in sequence results in 100% sensitivity and 100% specificity for complete biceps tendon rupture. One may also note loss of more supination than flexion strength. In the case of lateral epicondylitis, the following maneuvers exacerbate pain at the lateral epicondyle. These include resisted wrist extension with the elbow fully extended and pronated, resisted extension of the middle finger, which is referred to as Maudsley test, and it selectively recruits fibers of the ECRB, maximal flexion of the wrist, passive wrist flexion and pronation, which causes pain at the elbow, and one may perform a chair test. With the elbow fully extended, the forearm is pronated, and the shoulder is forward flexed. The patient is asked to lift a chair. Lateral elbow pain is positive for lateral epicondylitis during this test. And lastly, in the case of medial epicondylitis, there will be pain with resisted forearm pronation and wrist flexion. However, there will be no instability or apprehension with a valgus stress or a milking maneuver, so this is used to differentiate from MCL injuries. That's all for this review about elbow physical exam. We hope that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session from OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. As a reminder, you can follow along with these podcast episodes by reviewing the topics directly on orthobullets.com. You can listen to these episodes on the OrthoBullets website or phone app while reading through the topic. If the OrthoBullets podcast has been valuable to you, we'd be thrilled if you considered leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow, right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.